Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in here on Tuesday, September 17th, and thanks so much for tuning in. On today's show, I'm going to be speaking with British Columbia's Housing Minister, Selena Robinson. Yesterday, I had spoke with a, a local mortgage specialist about the speculation tax who said it has had an impact in Kamloops in the sense that more people seem to be looking here at the possibility of buying a home because the speculation tax doesn't apply here. Steve Booker, though, said we're starting to see rents in the community go up and there is the potential that some of these out-of-town people are buying houses, not occupying them, and that is, of course, impacting rent rates. So that's one concern. There's also the uncertainty that home builders may not be able to sell a home for the amount of money to make it worth building, and that's having an impact on new home builds as well. That sentiment was echoed by Liberal housing critic Sam Sullivan, so today we get Selena Robinson on to have her have her say. And to end off today's program, I'm going to be speaking with the president of the local steelworkers union after more mill closures in the last week. Focal Industries announced it was shutting down its Kelowna-based operation, affecting 127 employees. In addition to that, the West Fraser Mill in Chasm, a sawmill making up large large portion of the workforce in the small town west of Kamloops was closed down for good on September 8th, leaving 176 people out of work there. But to kick off today's show, I uh, previously interviewed TRU's Jeffrey Myers as the Canadian election finished up its, or is finishing up its first full week. With the 43rd Canadian election now into day seven, here to talk about some of the subjects that the campaign trail is bringing forward is Thompson Rivers University lecturer and lawyer, Jeffrey Myers. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming in. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and with you in the studio. Perfect. So uh, almost a full week now here into this. And, uh, you know, has anything really surprised you at all to this point? I guess nothing has really stood out to me so mm. far, um, other than, you know, Justin Trudeau was here in Kamloops the day the first leaders debate took place. I wasn't really surprised that Trudeau skipped that one in particular. I guess I guess the only real surprise for me was yesterday's announcement that Maxime Bernier has been invited to the uh, French and English leadership debates on the 7th and 10th. Uh, I'm not saying he shouldn't be there. I, I was just surprised to see him get the invite, I guess. Mm. How do you feel about that in particular? And, and has anything else really stood out to you through the first week? Well, I mean, the first thing I think that stood out to me is, you know, um, that this election has sort of started off with the Liberals looking as good as they do. Um, in light, I think, of the SNC-Lavalin um, scandal and the kind of wounds that that inflicted on the government, I think there was some expectation um, you know, that that would be a major issue coming into the election. And by all accounts at this early stage, and it is an early stage, um, you know, the Liberals and the Conservatives are sort of neck and neck, uh, and the election is going to come down to, um, to Ontario and Quebec, so it looks a lot like any other yeah. <laughs> Canadian election. Uh, and of course, uh, the question that I think is an interesting one and an important one also is sort of what's happening on the left as um, the Greens and the NDP uh, appear now to be sort of converging uh, in their competition for support, which again is always the case, but the Greens seem to be strengthening. And there's a kind of narrative that the NDP is weakening. Although I will add, one should remember, it's still early days. Nobody's actually voted yet. So... The media can create a lot of expectations and drive the narrative in a way that's not always helpful. Just to, to get back to um, Maxime Bernier being mm -hmm. invited here, I mean, I guess just what are your thoughts on, on him being invited? I mean, I feel like for dem democratic purposes, it's always important to get people on stage uh, and to get people kind of having their voice out there. But I also worry, you know, a little bit when we look at the states and we look at like the, the Democratic Party conventions and stuff, and there's too many people to even get on stage for one night of debates. They have to spread it over two days. I don't want to see Canadian politics sort of go that way because I think it dilutes a lot of um, what people can actually... Uh, 
you know, take in when they're watching some of these arguments take place. So I guess just, just what are your thoughts on adding more people to a leadership debate and adding people to the stage? I mean, good for democracy or, or more difficult for voters? Well, I mean, there's a I guess there's the question specifically of Maxine Bernier himself and what he sort of represents uh, for our electorate. And then there's a more, and then there's a different, slightly different question, which I think you're asking around sort of how viable do you have yeah, to be yeah. in order to be on the debate stage, right? And so we're, you're thinking, um, of course, like many people of these um, Democratic primary debates where you've had, you know, anywhere between, you know, 19 or 20 and 10 candidates on the stage and everybody sort of gets in a word here or there and it's all about the zingers and there's not much substance, right? So I think there is some truth that, you know, if you're not polling above a certain, you know, de minimis amount that probably you shouldn't be on the debate stage because it detracts from hearing from those candidates who have a viable chance to win. You know, um, that said, when the Green Party was polling the same way that Maxine Bernier's party is polling now, my position was that they should be on the stage and they should be given an opportunity to make their case to Canadians. So it, it would be hard for me to, you know, sort of make a different argument because of the fact that I think Maxine Bernier and his politics are loathsome. Um, you know, I do think that they are loathsome politics and I do think they are what typically had traditionally been viewed as a fringe politics. Um, and I hope that their exposure in prime time will lead to Canadians concluding that those ideas are not desirable. Um, nevertheless, um, there is a risk that it will attract uh, some, um, some voters. And unfortunately, in a democracy, you know, those lines have to be drawn. And wherever they're drawn, uh, there's going to be questions about it. I think it's interesting to look at our own kind of electoral political system in a comparative way with sort of two of our closest allies, uh, the United States and the UK. In the United States, the um, far-right kind of extremist nationalist politics have found a home within the Republican Party, which used to be a kind of mainstream so-called center-right uh, party, which brought together social conservatives and economic uh, libertarians in sort of a broad tent. Um, and now what's happened in the years since Trump has become uh, the leader of the Republican Party and now the president is that the vast majority of Republicans are personally supporting Trump and the politics have changed significantly to reflect the politics that previously were sort of outside of polite conversation or generally accepted discourse. Now, in the, and I think there's a lot of blame on mainstream Republicans if they had any genuine values outside of the kind of, you know, base politics that Donald Trump was um, peddling to have stood out and spoken out, and I don't think enough of them have, or meaningfully enough. We'll see how these primary uh, challenges pan out. But in the UK, on the other hand, you see what's happened where the organized Tory party, its reaction to Johnson's um, prime ministership and his sort of extreme politics has been that there's been some pushback on him from within his own party. Mm -hmm. The pushback in the Tory party has meant effectively that Maxine Bernier is on the outside of the tent, as it were, and has started his own party. And I think it's, in a sense, Good that, you know, that some of these interests maybe won't find a home within the Conservative Party, which is admittedly a mainstream party with a shot at power, and that they'll be um, on the margins in this way. But I think voters should also be mindful of the fact that Maxine Bernier was born from the Tory party. He mm -hmm. was a part of Stephen Harper's government, and he attempted to be the leader of that party. And I think that trying to draw a distinction between the Conservatives and those kind of noxious far-right politics is going to be a major theme in this election. 
here with TRRU's uh, Jeffrey Myers. I, I guess I, just kind of sticking out in Quebec, because you, you brought this up before we came on here, with that mm-hmm. uh, Bill 21 mm-hmm. uh, has been a topic that has been on the trail already. Um, Quebec's Premier, of course, has asked whoever uh, forms the next government not to sort of meddle in, that, in the Quebec's battle to keep its controversial bill that bars some uh, public sector workers from wearing uh, certain religious clothing or symbols, if you will. So Andrew Shear and Jagmeet Singh have both said that they won't be getting involved, whereas Trudeau did not go that far, uh, basically saying it's too early or it doesn't make sense at this point for them to get involved. I guess, uh, what impact do you think this particular subject, I guess, could have on the election? And, and do you think it really has much bearing outside of Quebec, or is that really, do you think, the main spot where this issue will be contentious? You know, I think this is a major fault line, and I think it will be a major issue in the election, and it probably rightly should be. Uh, the complex, the politics of it are enormously complex because of the fact that Quebec is more of a three-way race than any of the other provinces, right? The idea that the Liberals are in the lead there and competitive, the Tories specifically have had a real strong uh, presence in those sort of ridings between Quebec and Montreal, where they've got about 15 uh, members. And the NDP, as you know, two election cycles ago, really broke through mm-hmm. in Quebec and maintain a toehold there. So the problem is, is that voters outside and inside Quebec view this issue very differently. Now, I, as a constitutional lawyer, have lectured on and spoken about what it has meant for the Legault government to trigger the notwithstanding clause, which means that basically this law isn't subject to charter scrutiny in the regular course of things. And the reason a government does that and the reason that the government of Quebec did this is because they know what they were doing would violate particularly Section 15 right. of the Charter. And I think it goes against the values of most uh, Canadians. Um, but in Quebec, it's a fraught issue and there are different views on it. If this becomes viewed through the prism of the rest of Canada telling Quebec what's best for it, it could seriously undermine uh, those parties that are viewed as taking that position. If, however, um, it's dealt with in a way that's kind of regional and contained, uh, perhaps it'll work better for electoral politics in Quebec, but it might leave a bad taste in the mouths of voters elsewhere. Now, my opinion on this is that um, the parties should all be very explicit in saying that this is contrary to Canadian values and that they do not support this. But the Conservatives have tried to triangulate a bit, the uh, NDP have tried to triangulate a bit, and even Mr. Trudeau, when normally the Liberals are most um, outspoken on these issues, has said, you know, he's not going to say, he's not going to intervene now on this matter, but he may at some future date. Now, by the way, the tools that he'll have available to him as a matter of law to intervene in this act are pretty limited because of the notwithstanding clause. But I think it's an issue of, of values, and I think, you know, sometimes you have to say, political calculations be damned, um, you know, what are the values that I, my party, and my voters believe in? And in this case, I think these values are antithetical to what many Canadians believe, and I think there's a risk of offending Quebecers who believe in this reading of secularism to make that an election issue, but I'm not sure that that's a risk we can't afford not to take in light of the fact that politics in a lot of countries, including, again, as I said, the UK and the US are two closest allies and the two countries most similar to us, have increasingly been subject to very extremist views. Well, uh, we do have to take a, a bit of a break here, but I'll be continuing this conversation here with TRU's Jeffrey Myers afterwards. So, stick around. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. 
Welcome back in, and thank you so much for tuning in. Prior to the break, I started speaking with TRU lecturer and lawyer Jeffrey Myers, so if you missed the first half of that, you can always find it online at radionl.com slash podcasts, and full episodes of the show are now available on uh, platforms including Spotify and Google Podcasts. Now, uh, Jeffrey, one thing that intrigues me in this election is the possibility that we could see two independent candidates win seats. Uh, that's, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould in Vancouver, Granville, and Jane Philpott out in Markham. Of course, those uh, both are running as independents after the fallout of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Uh, what entices me is that there is a possibility for someone who isn't running under any party banner to win. Uh, it's just something that doesn't happen in these elections. And, and if they do pull it out, I guess, would that be at all proof in a shift that people are less and less okay with the status quo of party politics? Unfortunately, I, I, I'm, you know, I think that Jody Wilson-Raybould and the, her exit from government, along with Jane Philpott's exit from government, was enormously symbolic for Canadians, and it could, and it should be an important issue in this election. Um, but it, but if what these two people who have the respect, I think, of many Canadians, are going to do with it is simply to run as independents, they're going to find headlong they're going to bump into the reality that independent uh, MPs can do very little. Um, so again, it goes back to my previous point, is if I was Jody Wilson-Raybould or I was Jane Philpott, I would be working with the NDP and the Greens or trying to broker a deal to leverage my reputation, the esteem that Canadians hold me and my public profile to actually bring these folks together to try to plan on a left alternative to Trudeau's government. So I think by just running and defending their own seats, they're probably angling longer term to re-enter the Liberal Party in the post-Justin Trudeau um, era. So I think for you know those who are looking for progressive alternatives, they may not be it. And I'm a mm. bit disappointed by that because those are my politics. But yeah, I don't. It, they have a chance because of their name recognition. Certainly, a more chance than most independents mm -hmm. would to be elected. But once they're elected as independents, there's very little they can do. So if they're serious about some of the values which they're espousing, they need to look at which parties that are currently in it, other than the Liberals, which they've clearly abandoned, are most in keeping with those values. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I just never really put it necessarily that way. But uh, yeah, I was always sort of rooting for the underdog in just some of these situations, not necessarily across the board, but just like to see some actual change, because it always feels like most people like go to the polls, they have two choices, mm. they can vote liberal, they can vote conservative. Many people feel they vote orange or green, they're just throwing their vote mm -hmm. away. And it's, I, I find it frustrating because I think we have more than two options. We're not in the U.S., right, where we don't just stuck between Democrats and Republicans. We have other options, but people don't necessarily view them as viable options. Uh, and I thought with these two names, you know, maybe it's a, a start for people to kind of continue to looking outside the box, and, and maybe that's not necessarily the case. Well, can't, it's not, it just, it's what exercise of power, what can these individuals do? I mean, the point of elections is to win power and set the agenda. Now, sometimes that doesn't mean you're going to win a majority. Sometimes it means you're the key broker in a minority mm -hmm. situation. It could mean anything, but there has to be a sort of game plan beyond the symbolic value of like winning your own seat as a protest, right? So to my mind that that lacks a little bit of a vision or it could be something different, right? That's that's how I view that. And, and just sticking with those two names, like, yeah. since we haven't yeah. got really to it yet, you brought it up a little bit, yeah. but with SNC-Lavalin, obviously the scandal mm -hmm. uh, is going to continue to come up again and again over these next, uh, what do we have, uh, 30, four days left. So I guess, where do you see the story going from here? I mean, I know the NDP and conservatives are sort of beating the drum that uh, the liberals can't be trusted and Trudeau's corrupt. And it, whether that's true or not, I guess, do you think that's having a significant impact on the way people would choose to vote? Like I was, like we were just been talking about, like, you know, there's really only two options for a lot of people out there. So uh, do you think that those two messages from Jagmeet and from Andrew are enough to, to tell you people don't vote liberal. Well, again, the narrative is that there's two options there because the polls suggest that that's the way public opinion is breaking. But yeah. I think it's important, and, and again, visionary leadership would 
would ex would probably articulate this better than I am to say that that's the votes haven't been held until yeah. we've okay, gone no. and ticked our ballots. So yeah. people need to really and and to think about this strategically. Um, you know, so um, you know the SNC Lavalin controversy. I mean, one thing that seems obvious to me is that it's it's actually not it's it might help Justin Trudeau's liberals in Quebec, right? Because I think sure. there's a bit of what's happening, in, and this is very unfortunate, I think, for this country that the um, the kind of Quebec versus the rest of Canada cultural politics, which we're all familiar with, for, that they've been with us for decades, and they brought us to the edge of separating our country. Mm -hmm are now being played out in this election along two lines. One is the question of Bill C-21, which we've discussed. And I, I'm very sensitive to this because I lived in Montreal for years. I went to McGill Law School, right? The other one is on this question of the SNC-Lavalin, right? So if Quebecers are to believe that the Trudeau government was doing everything it could to defend Quebecers' jobs, and was being a kind of um, realpolitik, that could redound to its benefit. And if they view um, parties outside of Quebec as sort of tutting Quebec for having a political, a corrupt political culture, that will press a nerve and could um, unleash all kinds of forces that we're not thinking about. The same, in a, in, a, in a complex sense, the same difficulty is around Bill 21. What do the parties do? Do they sort of respect this iteration of secularism, which is popular in Quebec, or do they go right at it? Again, you risk that tripwire, right? Typically, the party that's been best able to manage that tripwire is the liberals. Um, in this case, depending on the issue, it's going to come down um, slightly differently. But as I see things now, I don't know that the SNC-Lavalin affair is hurting uh, liberals badly in mm -hmm. um, Ontario. And I don't know that it's, and I think it might be helping a little bit in Quebec. And I think that to the extent that Justin Trudeau gets criticized on this, if the Conservatives are seen as the viable alternative and not the NDP, the benefit will redound to the yep. Conservatives more than the NDP. But if the NDP or the Greens, for that matter, become um, competitive, then they may get some of the advantage too. But my fear is that most people who are thinking like, kick the corrupt bums out, are going to probably choose the Conservatives if they think that's the most viable option to go, rather than one of those other progressive parties. And of course, that shows a sort of short memory because Stephen Harper's government was beset by similar kinds of scandals, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they were in there for what was it? Uh, ten, years, ten years, I think. Yeah. Ten years. Ten or eleven years. Like a really yeah. Long time. It was a and, long time. And that's why people, I think, wanted the change, right? They just wanted something different—a new voice, a new name, a new face. But Justin uh -huh. Trudeau, of course, his Achilles' heel has been yeah. that he's he's his image as this kind of new sunshiny ways. This kind of ethical above the fray politician that he's run on has really been damaged his personal mm -hmm. brand in some ways i see again things could change at any time but one of the things that this kind of reminds me about this feels like barack obama's re-election in uh 2012 where it was like is he going to get back all these enthusiastic young voters from 2008 is he really the change agent people had seen him for president for a year they realized he wasn't a he was he was, an, he was somewhat progressive, but he wasn't the progressive icon that some people had hoped. There had been some disappointments. There had been some bitterness. Nevertheless, when compared to sort of a milquetoast politician from the center-right party, he managed to prevail. He beat ben, uh, Mitt Romney and became a president again. It looks to me like Trudeau may be able to sort of use the same playbook. I think that what the opposition parties will have to do if they're going to be effective against him is they're really going to have to emphasize that those places where he's made promises, uh, particularly, as I say, around the environment and around reconciliation with indigenous people and around proportional representation that have just been sloughed off. Mm -hmm. um, and again, depending on the traction that those arguments get and depending on how people, how backed into a corner people feel, they'll either redound or not to his benefit. But that's what it looks like now at this admittedly sort of early stage. Yeah. Well, 
Uh, unfortunately, that pretty much wraps up our time. I might have even gone a little longer than I planned here. But uh, thanks so much for coming in, Jeff. Really appreciate My it. My pleasure. Love talking to your listeners. Awesome. Well, yeah. uh, Jeffrey, again, uh, you know, October 21st. That's the <laughs> that's the date. Hopefully, we can uh, get together before then, too. Sure. That'd be awesome. fun. That was Jeffrey Myers, Thompson Rivers University lecturer and lawyer. Time for a quick break here, but coming up, I'll be speaking with BC's Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing in regards to the spec tax and how that's impacting the province's housing market. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here to the Jeff Andreas Show on Tuesday, September 17th. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, going to continue a conversation I had yesterday with a couple of individuals, including the liberal critic of housing, uh, Sam Sullivan, who was uh, kind of uh, unhappy with how things have panned out so far when it comes to the speculation tax that has been in place in B.C. Here to respond now is Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Selena Robinson. Selena, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So I guess just to, to start off, I guess uh, last week uh, we saw the finance minister talking about the $115 million, I believe it was, that was brought in by the province as a result of the speculation tax. So obviously uh, trying, trying to put uh, some good news forward on that front. I guess um, just, just what are your thoughts on the speculation tax so far? Has it gone according to, to plan for, for the NDP government at this point? Obviously it has brought in some money, uh, but there has been a lot of criticism as well. But let's remember the context in which we brought this in. This was about um, British Columbia being under the, the, the challenges of a very, very, very significant housing crisis. People couldn't afford to get into the market. Uh, people were being priced out. Um, people were having to leave. Uh, the, our children were having to leave because they couldn't afford housing. And I always think it's important that we remember how hard it has been in so many communities across this province to find the kind of housing that people can afford. And I'm talking about people who have decent jobs. This isn't about people who um, you know, are struggling financially. These are people who have good jobs. And it was really untenable. And as a government, we looked at this, we formed government and said, we have to do a whole number of things in order to bring things back to normal. And it's about achieving a normal, balanced housing market. And that's what the speculation tax is um, doing in combination with a number of other uh, interventions that we have made as part of our 30-point plan. Uh, but what I've seen is, uh, you know, there has been, seems to have been an impact in terms of housing prices in the Vancouver area, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily dropped any prices in terms of affordability, at least, uh, outside of, you know, Vancouver itself. I guess, uh, you know, what, what has to happen or what has to change to sort of see that shift outside of the big city itself? Uh, you know, what is going to help make things more affordable moving forward for families? Obviously, uh, another big part of this is home availability. Um, so maybe just touch on the first part, I guess. So, you know, we have seen an impact on some of those pricing in Vancouver, but is it going to expand beyond that, and how soon is that going to happen, do you think? Well, and remember, this, this housing crisis didn't appear overnight. It built over time, and much like bringing it down into a normal market is also going to take some time, and it's really only been a little over a year, so mm -hmm. we're going to, we're, I, I believe we're going to start to see that. It has to sort of, you know, spill over, um, but I also think there, and this is why we put in a 30-point plan, because it's also about building the right kind of supply. Uh, we have been seeing an over-representation, an over-abundance of um, bachelor and one-bedroom condos in places where families 
families need two or three bedrooms or downsizers um, need to live uh, you know as a couple in more than 600 square feet and the product wasn't being built so it's about getting the right supply in the right communities and that's why we brought in legislation requiring local governments to do a housing needs assessment every five years this way everybody knows exactly what the housing needs are and can build the right supply at the right time in the for the right market and and that's why uh, we're we've, we've moved this legislation forward we've also put in uh, seven billion dollars over 10 years to build to help build some of the right supply because we know that that's going to we're going to have to accelerate that and make sure that we're building for you know some of the missing middle people on the lower end of the market as well are you know are desperate um, and we've also developed the housing hub which is a, a unique um, um, branch of BC Housing that is designed to work together with partners to build you know, housing for the missing middle and how can we leverage uh, land that is available and build the right kind of housing so that we, we're better meeting people's needs. So we're doing a range of things in order to create a normal market. So if, if municipalities are doing these housing assessments and figuring out exactly what kinds of housing they do require within their communities, uh, one of the concerns I was hearing yesterday with a, a local mortgage specialist that I spoke to, we was talking about just that the uncertainty around, you know, the home builders and just sort of unsure if they can actually uh, necessarily get the money that they want for a home after they build it because of the, the, the change with the speculation tax. And I think part of it myself is just probably because, like you had said, it's only been about a year and so they're still kind of figuring out how to... Um, how this truly impacts the market but at the same point i guess what are you guys doing to entice people or entice builders to build new homes you mentioned uh, you know putting some money into sort of uh, uh, bridge the market gap that exists if you will um mm-hmm. but i guess uh, what what's what is the plan in order to get builders entice them to actually get out and start building homes because we have seen a slowdown in the construction uh, industry around here well, I do want to remind everybody that we still have housing starts are still um, higher than the 10-year average. Because remember, it was a super hyped-up market. It's still it's still really high. Housing starts are still really high. So we, again, we need to remember how crazy things were. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting that you raise you know the concerns of of the developers and the builders. And um, I spent considerable time talking with them and engaging with them around what were some of the barriers for them. And they talked about the development approval process. You know, the the Byzantine, often Byzantine rules and regulations that apply across different local governments. Um, And local governments do have um, the land use planning um, responsibility. And so we have spent the last year meeting with uh, the development community, local governments, and others, planners, um, to look at the development review process. So how, you know, it's been built out over, I don't know, I want to say 100 years. Um, And are there places or ways that we can make that work better so that it takes less time? Because we do know that it takes time, and and we do want to make sure that, you know, neighborhoods are built out properly and that we hear from, from people. That's really important. But is there a way for us to do best practices and look at ways to make that work better and that was the the top of mind issue for for builders and so we took that information and um i've you know been we were um, looking at the report the overall ideas that have come forward and want to make sure that that system works better for everybody and so we're committed to continue to doing that work with the development community with local governments making sure that we have a system that works better so that the process can move faster because it does cost money 
uh, when it takes a long time. And we get that, and we want to make that a more efficient system. And we're working with our partners to deliver that. Uh, I'm here with Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Selena Robinson. So um, just to, to follow up that point, I guess one of the, one of the also... Um, reasons for putting in the speculation tax was to remove a number of those foreign buyers, I guess, if you will, that, that you know, were, were buying homes and then not really living in them and having a lot of vacant properties. Um, have you have you noticed or has there been a big change in that marketplace? I feel like, uh, you know, that's one of the things that has had somewhat at least of an impact on is, is getting rid of some of those people who are just buying homes for the sake of buying homes and not living in them. I mean, right. have you seen that shift at all? Uh, can, can you quantify that or, or how that process itself has worked so far? Again, that's that's part of what we're looking at to take a to take a look at um, what's happening with our rental market and our vacancy vacancy rate. And one of the things that we learned when we formed government is that no one was collecting that data. Right? We didn't have good data. And when CMHC puts out their vacancy rate data, that's only for purpose-built rental, um, and that's the only data that existed. And so we've uh, tasked um, our staff to take a look at other ways to identify what is our true vacancy rate, whether it's understanding what's happening with basement suites, because that's not captured in the data, or when people have investment properties. Are they, are they renting it out, or are they just holding it? And we were certainly seeing with the speculation tax, people are just holding them and keeping them empty. When people can live in there, and and that would help address some of the challenges that we're having in larger cities. So again, this is a lot of the work that we're doing is collecting the data and making sure that we're we're not sitting with these empty homes uh, because that's not good for our economy. When people can't afford to live here, um, they're going to leave. And when they leave, it means that we lose our workforce. And you know, if if we can't have teachers and nurses and um, you know uh, um, paramedics who can afford to live in our communities, then what is that going to do for us, those of us who do have homes, um, in terms of being able to get the services that we depend on and the services that we need? So it's really critical that we continue to have, uh, you know, the kind of uh, a robust housing market that allows people to live in them and to live in our communities so that we can have a thriving economy. Uh, one one concern that was also brought up to me yesterday was, uh, you know, obviously the spec tax is in place for specific communities, um, and and it's not here in Kamloops. So obviously, with with my show being based out of Kamloops, there is um, some thought, at least belief, that because the spec tax isn't in place here, that people are uh, considering in Kamloops a little bit more as a place to buy a home as a result of not having to pay that extra percentage. Um, and and then with that, of course, does come this concern that there are some possible. I don't want to say they're necessarily foreign buyers but people who are purchasing a home here and and potentially not living in it. And we already have a huge problem with rental here and not having enough availability and rents continuing to go up. I guess, you know, what, what was the determination behind where these, these the spec tax was put in place? How come Kamloops wasn't a part of that? And I guess, is there a concern now that it's not that, you know, people are just shifting their buying habits to come up here? Well, I mean, I think that's a very good point, and I know that the Minister of Finance has been very clear around monitoring very carefully and taking a look at uh, are there other pressure points and are there other communities, and that's why she does meet with, with the mayors uh, to say, so what's happening in your community, because they're on the ground. And so, again, it's this, this um, engagement is absolutely critical, making sure that we are identifying how we need to adapt whatever policy we make, and that's really what governments ought to be doing, is always monitoring how their policies are playing out in communities 
opportunities and adapting it. And I know that the Minister of Finance is committed to continually monitoring uh, this tax and making sure that it's working and delivering, again, making sure that the housing market is, um, is there for the people who live and work and build their communities and build the, the economies of, of, this, of this province um, in different regions. And so we need to make sure that the, that housing is being built and is being used by people who live in those communities. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. Take care. All All right. right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Selena Robinson, BC's Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Like I had mentioned earlier, I did have the Liberals' Municipal Affairs critic on yesterday who has concerns that people are, are leaving the province also as a result of this tax, or or at least that's a factor in their decision to leave. And he also believes that, uh, as I had mentioned to Selena Robinson, that the tax is hurting development. Here's a clip from Sam Sullivan yesterday. What we really need is we need more homes to be built. And what these taxes are doing are actually creating uncertainty, uh, creating disincentives, and people, uh, the developers, are, are basically leaving town, and many of them are, are developing in other parts of uh, North America. So, of course, there are two sides to every story, and if you want to hear that full interview with Sam Sullivan, you can find that on RadioNL.com slash podcast, and, of course, uh, the interview here with Selena Robinson, we posted there as well. Coming up after the break, I have the local union president coming on to talk mill closures after a couple more here in the last 10 days. That will be coming up after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. We're back, and I am joined now by the president of Steelworkers Union Local 1417 after more mill closures in the last week. The local industries announced it was shutting down its Kelowna-based operation, affecting 127 employees there. And in addition to that, the West Fraser Mill in Chasm, a sawmill making up a large portion of the workforce in the small town west of Kamloops, was closed down for good on September 8th, leaving 176 people out of work. Here to join me now to talk about this situation is Marty Gibbons. Marty, thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. So let me just start by asking these two closures, and I guess specifically the one in Chasm, because that uh, obviously was a little bit closer to home here. I guess, did they, they catch you at all by surprise? So um, based on the bug kill, based on the shrinking availability of timber, you know, it was it was known that there was going to be a reduction in the industry. Um, the magnitude of the re- reduction actually did shock us, right? Chasm was an excellent productive mill, and it was really shocking to see it disappear. So uh, just from a union perspective, I guess, how are the workers doing right now? They must be feeling a little bit devastated by these job losses. So um, one thing Wes Fraser did right out of the gate, which other employers that such as Canfor didn't do, is, is they actually did a crew talk. At the same time they were announcing the closure, they also told every single employee, if you want a job, we got a job for you. And, you know, one thing I found was that actually really helped with the whole tone of the closure. But in addition to that, so many of our members have transferred and decided to stay within West Fraser, actually a quite a, a surprisingly large number, um, obviously moving to other communities. But we've also been doing a lot of work with the government, and we've been putting on a lot of career fairs and, and advancing career information to individuals and, and working with different organizations and lobbying for some additional assistance, which the rumor is we're going to hear some more this morning 
from the NDP government regarding assistance. So uh, we have been busy, and you know, it's it's tough to have a, a mill that supported generations of workers, multi generations of workers disappear. Um, but we're we're trying to make the best out of a bad situation. Now, over the course in this shift that we're seeing from the sawmill industry, I guess how rare is it that uh, you know there are companies out there that are are helping to find other employment for the people that they are laying off? Is that uh, you know a, a, just a pleasant surprise in this case, or is that well, uh, something that is pretty pretty uh, common? Well, you know what, whether you're a manager or or a worker, whether it's radio or forestry, we're all working people, and you know there's a lot of. Um, sympathy from other working people and other employers and I don't think it's completely unique to see this kind of um, other employers stepping up and participating in career fairs. We have a fairly strong employment market right now and it's it certainly is great to see those employers that have stepped up as well as employers like West Fraser who have really dug deep to look after their workers. Uh, does this feel sometimes, I mean, uh, just sort of kind of to follow that up, does it ever feel like it's a done deal for a lot of people who are working in this industry? Like, like I won't be working at a sawmill again, or, or it's just a matter of time before, um, you know, I do lose my job in this specific industry. And, and, and how has, you know, you talked about having job fairs and things along those lines to try to help uh, bridge the, the gap between, you know, potential employment vacancies that are going to be made as a result of losing jobs. I guess, uh, you know, just what is the, the morale around a lot of sawmill workers are they uh, just really uh, worried about what the future might hold at this point or are they a little more upbeat in the sense that you know you guys are trying to help provide more opportunities and you're trying to help them transition you know just just how are people feeling just going to work every day it's got to be pretty difficult just knowing that you know there is this possibility that uh, you know things might be a lot different come tomorrow if a mill were to shut down absolutely it is it is it is bad for morale when, when we start talking shutdowns at a mill you know, incident rates go up, um, uh, where people start looking for other work, and it's just devastating. And there are a lot of forestry workers out there that feel that their jobs are in jeopardy. We would like to think that with the reductions we've had so far that we're not going to see any more. But, you know, if, if I could talk about it, you know, we, we, so I speak on behalf of USW Local 1417, and that's it the members mm-hmm. that I represent. I don't represent the members in Kelowna, but I, I speak for the workers in Aspen, Plainers, and Merritt who have been working less than 50% of the time. I speak for the workers in Savannah and Lillooet whose, whose jobs are, are teetering on available timber. At Hefley Creek, who have had a number of shutdowns because of, of issues such as stumpage and log supply in our area. So I do speak on behalf of those. And the one issue that I really want to kind of highlight here is we need to work, we need to, to work on our forest industry. We need to make it viable for not just the next year or the next two years, long term, so we can continue to have an industry that actually supports multi-generation workers. And uh, we have we have grandfathers and, and grandchildren in some of our operations, well, they're gone now, all working in, so basically generations of families working in one area. And the one area that our local in particular has believes that is causing us a lot of grief. And once again, I don't speak for the entire steel workers, and there's probably a few listening that are that are um, maybe not necessarily impressed that I'm going to say this. But we need to look at stumpage. The government needs to look at stumpage. Our stumpage system is not responsive. Our stumpage system actually encourages employers to run like crazy when markets are high and lay workers off when when markets lower and stumpage rises. Um, our, mark, our, our stumpage system it, it basically came into effect as, as an attempt to fix the softwood lumber tariff. I've been in the forest industry for close to 30 years. And for those vast majority of those 30 years, we have never been able to appease the Americans 
The Americans seem to change the rules and do whatever they want every time we have a success. And I just, I'm very concerned that the government policy needs to start looking at stumpage and stumpage that actually enables workers to go to work. We have 150 members in clear sorry, in merit right now that are running out of EI, that are up and down, and the employers are telling us, we want to run, we can't afford to buy the logs based on our stumpage system. We're not saying that we throw the baby out with the bathwater, but what we're saying is, is being held hostage by an unreasonable American group of companies, um, who are the Softwood Coalition for screwing Canada, um, whatever their official name is, that may not be it, uh, basically is, uh, they're holding us hostage and workers are paying the price and the government needs to change their stance. They need to be prepared to look at fixes for stumpage. You know, what works for everybody? And right now the response we're getting is basically that we can't make any changes because of the Americans. And being held hostage is not going to put workers back to work. Uh, Marty, I have about 30 seconds left, but I just want to get you out of here on this. So you had mentioned that, you know, there was some hope that, um, you know, with the amount of closures that we have seen, that maybe that there is a peak that's uh, coming close if it hasn't been hit already, so people aren't going to start losing their jobs anymore because there's just, the forest industry is not going to completely die off. Um, and and if, if there is no change in stumpage fees or any of those other uh, programs that you're looking to shift, I guess, just is there a limit? Have you guys done any projection as to how much more the, the industry can handle in terms of losses before, um, you know, it does hit that peak and, and people are going to feel a little more safe? We have been just based on a lot of the stuff that's out there in some of the forestry magazines is there is an extreme, there was a large excess of, of production versus, uh, you know, supply of timber. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is still going to be some contraction, you know, but the real concerning thing for our area, when I talk about the, the operations that I'm listing there, um, the real concerning thing there is, is these employers, are gonna, these workers are going to sit until we wait for stumpage to lower which is a system that is broken. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, the, we're actually sitting these workers. These workers will be at work working full-time in these communities, in, uh, the community of merit right now, um, if it was not for the stumpage system. You know, and I, I don't, um, it's not very often the employers and I seem to be on the same page, but, uh, you know, on this issue is we need to get our members back to work and we need a stumpage system that actually is responsive and doesn't encourage workers or employers to go like crazy in good times and lay workers off when stumpage catches up, which is the system we have now. Well, Marty, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, that was Marty Gibbons, local steelworkers union uh, for Local 1417. Well, that wraps things up here today, so thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank all my guests again for coming on the show. And remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time. While it lasted, I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.